First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We are continuing uh, today our study of Paul's letter to the church in the city of Philippi. And even though the words that we're about to read together are almost 2,000 years old, because the Bible is alive, because the Bible is active, because it's sharper than a two-edged sword, our prayer this morning is that God would use his word to penetrate our hearts, uh, to speak directly to us, to show us truth about ourselves, and more importantly, to show us truth about his son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read it together. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27, and we'll read down to verse 4 of chapter 2. Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that you would change us by your word, that, Lord, we would be marked by the humility of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that today, wherever we are in our spiritual journey with you, that, Father, you would break through, that you would speak your life and your truth into our hearts today that we would grow in our faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, the words that we have just read are a part of an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church in the city of Philippi, a church that he helped to plant. Talked about church planting just a few moments ago in Miami. Well, this was some church planting that had gone on in the city of Philippi. And and Paul loved this church, and he's writing to this church that he's physically separated from. And we've already seen in the weeks that we've walked through this letter together, he's already greeted this church. He's already shared with his church how he's praying for them and what he's praying for them about. He's already filled this church in on how he's personally doing and how the gospel is moving forward and progressing even while he is sitting in jail under house arrest. 
And then last week in verses 19 through 26, we saw how Paul really opened up his heart to the the people in this church and just said, listen, for me, from my perspective, no matter what happens to me, no matter what happens in this trial, no matter whether I'm released or whether I am executed, Paul said, for me, it's a win-win situation. Uh, Because either they're going to release me and I'm going to continue to be able to minister and tell people about Jesus or they're going to kill me and all that means is I get to go and be with Jesus. That was Paul's perspective. It was a win-win situation for him because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if that's our perspective, if our whole lives are wrapped up in Jesus Christ, then church, it's a win-win situation for us today. And then when we come to our passage, and starting in verse 27 of chapter 1, this is really the first time in this letter where we're moving out of kind of the autobiographical section of this letter, and we're moving into a section of this letter where really, again, for the first time, Paul is going to give us some teaching, some practical teaching about how we should be living as followers of Jesus Christ. And really, he sums up Everything he's about to say with the very first phrase in verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word only is emphasized there. Paul says, make sure you only do this thing, that you do this one and only thing, that you let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct there is a word that literally means to live as a good citizen. Perhaps you remember that this city of Philippi was considered a Roman colony, and they were very proud of that fact, that they were considered Roman citizens, even though they lived in this faraway city of Philippi, and they lived by Roman laws and Roman customs, and they enjoyed Roman privileges. And I almost think that Paul is playing off of that part of their identity as Roman citizens. And he's saying, listen, remember that you're first and foremost a citizen of heaven. That you live by heaven's laws. That you enjoy heaven's privileges. And, and, and churches, local churches like our church, are supposed to be little outposts of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so Paul reminds us of that. He says, live like you're a citizen of heaven, like you're a child of the king of kings. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's another way to to say that right here. Live every day in a way that matches the all-surpassing worth of the gospel. Again, these citizens of Philippi as Roman citizens, we're proud of that fact. As American citizens, uh, we're proud to be American citizens. And, And yet, as much as we might think that citizenship is worth, nothing is worth more than the gospel. Because the gospel is good news. It's good news that even though we have all sinned against God, even though what we deserve is God's judgment and what we deserve is an eternity of separation from God, that the good news of the Bible is that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus. That Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I have not been able to live. And that he went to the cross on that first Good Friday and that he paid for your sin and for my sin in full on the cross, a debt that we could have never paid. 
And then three days later on that first Easter Sunday, he rose up from the grave and right now he is alive. Do you believe that, church? And that is good news. That is the gospel. And Paul says we need to live in a way that is worthy of it. He's writing to Christians who've already believed that gospel. They've already received that good news. Their lives have already been transformed by that gospel. And he's saying now live in such a way that's, that's worthy of the gospel that you have believed. Not to earn salvation, but because salvation has already been given to you as a gift from God. Maybe that's a, a good question for us to ask ourselves right out of the gate here this morning. Right now in my life, Am I living in a way that is proper for a citizen of God's kingdom? Right now, in my life, am I living the way that someone who has been saved by Jesus should live? And if not, even today, just to open up our hearts to God, to allow Him to speak into our lives, to any area of our life that doesn't look like Jesus, and to confess it, to be willing to turn from it, to repent of it, and to walk worthy of the gospel that saves. In our passage for today, there's really two main paragraphs. There's chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And, and each of these two paragraphs are, are, are really bound together by a couple of ideas. They're, they're bound together, first of all, by this idea of walking worthy of the gospel. All of these verses describe what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. But these paragraphs are also held together by the idea of unity. You see that throughout all of these verses, that God wants us to walk out the gospel together. And so I want us to notice here this morning two ways uh, that we need to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the first way. Paul says we need to stand as one for the gospel. We need to stand as one for the gospel. You know, it's good to be reminded that we are in a spiritual war. That there is a battle that's going on all around us for the souls of men and women and girls and boys. And God has called his church to stand as one in the middle of that battle. First of all, when we look at verse 27, we see that Paul calls us to stand consistently consistently. Verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. So Paul says, whether I get to come to you and physically be with you or not, I, I want to hear about you and I want to hear that, that you are standing as one for the gospel. Paul says it shouldn't matter whether I'm physically with you or not. It, it, it almost reminds me of the language that a parent uses with a child, right? We don't want to raise our children in such a way that the only time they do what's right, right, is when we're right over their shoulder watching every single thing that they're doing, right? We want to train our children in such a way that even when we're away from them, right, even when we send them off to college, right, we know that they're going to live in a way that honors Christ, and Paul viewed the, the, the people in this church as his spiritual children, and this is what he wants for them. Because Paul doesn't know his future. He doesn't know whether he's going to be able to come to them or not. Now, he, he believes and has shared his conviction that, that God isn't finished with him yet and that he believes he's going to be able to come and minister to them again. But he knows that only the Lord knows his future for sure. And so he says, listen, wh whether I physically come to be with you or not, 
I want to hear that you're walking consistently. That you're standing for the gospel consistently. Friend, can I ask you, how consistent is your walk with Jesus right now? Are you living for Jesus all the time or only when you're around that person that's kind of like that Paul figure in your life? Or maybe only when you're at church, surrounded by other Christians, but when you're away from them, you live in a different manner. God wants us to live out the gospel consistently. But also, Paul tells us in this passage, he wants us to live out the gospel and stand for the gospel cooperatively. He wants us to stand together. If you look again at verse 27, Paul says, this is specifically what I want to hear about you. I want to hear this. I want to hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. The word stand that he uses there is a military term. It means to take your ground, to to hold a strategic position. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the spiritual armor that we're supposed to wear, that we might be able to stand fast, right? Having girded ourselves with this armor. But, but, but here's the deal. He's not speaking about one lone soldier. He's not speaking about a Rambo or a Jackie Chan that's holding some hill by themselves. The, the picture that he has in mind is more of a line of soldiers, That's standing fast together. That's what the church is supposed to be. And in the next phrase in this verse, he uses a slightly different image. He says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, striving together is not a military term. It's actually an athletic term. He took the Greek word for together and the Greek word for athlete, and he put them together. He said, we need to be an athlete for the gospel together. So the image isn't of an individual sport. The image isn't that we're like golfers attacking the course by ourselves. The image is more like a football team or a basketball team, that we're playing together. I, I don't know, uh, just out of curiosity, how, how many of y'all filled out a bracket for March Madness college basketball. Anybody in the room? All right, some hands. Uh, I do that every year. I'm really not sure why because I'm terrible at it. But I just do it for fun. It makes it more fun, you know, when you kind of guess at who you think is going to win all these games. And, uh, and I picked uh, my champion, and uh, I can pretty much already throw my bracket into the garbage can because the champion that I picked was Virginia, who went out in the very first round. And I don't know if you saw that, but they're calling that the biggest upset in the history of college basketball. In fact, some people said it might be one of the greatest upsets in the history of all sports. Because Virginia was a one seed and never before had a 16 seed knocked off a one seed. In fact, Virginia was the number one team in the country. And they got beat by a team that's called the University of Maryland at Baltimore County. How many of y'all attended there? (laughs) UMBC. Their website was crashing the other night as people were looking up what in the world is this college. And they knocked off the number one team in the country, and not just by like a, you know, a freak shot at the very end, by 20 points. Unbelievable. And I just want to share this with you. They did not defeat the number one team in the country by playing as individuals. They defeated them by playing together as a team. Church is a team sport. Church is a team sport. When God saved us into his family, into the church, he saved us as a part of a team. 
And he wants us to go out together. In fact, he says here that we're to strive together for the faith of the gospel. That means that we're a team that's defending the gospel together, this gospel that's once and for all been handed down to the saints. But it also means that we're striving together to share this gospel, that we're on mission together. That's part of what it means to be unified. And I I just want to ask you this, is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a part of a team called the church? Or for you, is the way that you view church is a place that I go once a week to worship? And maybe the next week I go to a different one. And the next week I go to a different one. If that's the case, you're not going to be able to live out what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. Because it's only when you're connected to a local church, like the church at Philippi, like this church, that you're going to be able to live these things out. And so I don't know whether this is the church that God has for you, or there's another church in Melbourne that's the church that God has for you. But friend, I would just share with you, wherever it is, whether it's here or there, to plug in somewhere where the word of God is taught and be a part of the team that's on mission together, that's striving together for the gospel. Paul says we're to stand for the gospel consistently. We're to stand for the gospel cooperatively. And then in verses 28 through 30, he says we're to stand for the gospel courageously. Look at those verses with me. Verse 28, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So it's clear from these verses that the Philippian church was being persecuted. And in verse 30, Paul reminds them that the same thing happened to him when he was in Philippi, right? In Acts 16, Paul was there with his friend Silas. They were uh, beaten, right? They were thrown into a prison cell. And he's, of course, already written in this letter about the things that were happening to him in the present moment in the city of Rome and his imprisonment there. And and so Paul says, you've already seen and witnessed and now heard the, 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 the kind of conflicts that I'm going through for the sake of the gospel. And now the very same things are happening to you. But he says in verse 28, don't be in any way terrified about that. The word refers to a horse that is startled by something and ends up throwing the rider off its back. He says, don't be startled, don't be skittish when, when, when something happens to you and persecution happens to you because uh, th- this is really should be an encouragement to you. Because he says, this is a proof. It's, it's a proof two ways. For, first of all, it's a sign for those that are persecuting you that, that they don't know me. God says it's an evidence that these are folks that are marked off for eternal destruction unless they turn in faith to Christ. But he says, on the other hand, the fact that you are being persecuted is a sign that you are a part of my family. And so when we experience that persecution, it should be an encouragement to us that we're a part of the family of God, and that's why these things are happening to us. This is the same thing Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice he says and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you And that's why in verse 29, Paul says, listen, this is not even just something to kind of tolerate or just resign yourself to. When you go through suffering, it's something to celebrate. Look at what he says there. He says, for you, it has been granted. The the word comes from the same word as the word grace. For you, you've been given this grace not only to believe in him. That's, That's a grace that's given to us from God. But he says, that's not the only grace you've been given. You've also been given this grace to be able to suffer for his sake. Friend, is that how you would view it if tonight somebody beat you and threw you in jail for talking about Jesus? I mean, I don't know, right? We'd like to think that that's how we respond to that, but but, but I'm not sure. And this is where we need to pray for God to work in our hearts and, and to change our perspective that if we are allowed, if we are called by God to suffer for his name, that that is a high and holy honor to suffer for the one who suffered for us on the cross. This is what he writes. Church, whatever it means for us, either right now or in the future, to follow Jesus. We're called to stand together for the gospel, to stand consistently, to stand cooperatively, to stand courageously for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as we move on into chapter 2, we see one more way that we're called to live worthy of the gospel. Not only are we called to stand for the gospel as one, but we're also called to show the gospel that makes us one. To show the gospel, that makes us one. In verse 1 of chapter 2, you see the word therefore is the first word of that verse. It shows us that what Paul is saying here is connected to what he has just finished saying. And again, what holds these two paragraphs together is this theme of, of unity. And Paul is calling this church to be unified against attacks that come from the outside, against external attacks. But here in chapter 2, he's also calling them to be unified and to be on their guard against internal attacks. Because very often what damages a local church is not an attack that comes from the outside. But what damages a local church is division and rivalry that springs up from within the church. And even as mature of a church as this church was in Philippi, apparently some of that was already going on. I want you to see these verses in chapter 4 where Paul writes to two women who were in this church at Philippi. This is what he says. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Apparently they weren't of the same mind at this moment. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these are Christians. These two women are Christians. And yet at this moment, they're they're not together, right? They're not unified. There's already division in this church. Now we're not told what these two women were arguing about. Maybe they were arguing over who had the worst name. I'm not sure. Because they're both pretty terrible, to be honest with you. I don't know. But they were fighting about something. 
And Paul speaks this word to them and, and he warns them about coming together. And this is a, a warning church that we need to hear today at First Baptist Moment. Because I think our church is a lot like the church at Philippi. This church is a mature church and, and so is ours. I believe our church is a godly church. I believe our church is filled with godly people who love Jesus. Our church is unified around a mission to make disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. And I see our church living that out and that excites my heart as a pastor. And yet I want us to be careful because we know that, that when a church is on the move, when God is using a church to, to reach a community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Satan wants to do everything he can to oppose that. And he's going to come in whatever door he can find. He might come in through two women named Euodia and Syntyche, right? He might come in through two men. He might come in through just two people who have a disagreement. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about some huge doctrinal matter. I don't think that's what was going on here. It can just be about a disagreement, about preferences, about one good ministry versus another ministry, right? I mean, we don't know what it is, but there's so many little things that, that we can fight about. And we know that that's how Satan was trying to bring down the church at Philippi. And that's how Satan is going to try to bring down our church as well. And the answer to stop that from happening is not just to lay a bunch of rules on people. The answer to stop that from happening is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul runs to in verses 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. He says, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection, if any mercy, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul says for this church to be one, for our church here at First Baptist Melbourne to be one, the first thing that he shows us here in verse one is why we can be one. Why we can be one. And, and in verse one, he lists all of these beautiful things that every Christian in this room has experienced. The first thing, thing he mentions is consolation or encouragement. The way the Lord comes along beside us and and encourages us. Haven't you experienced that, Christian? The encouragement of Christ? He mentions the comfort of his love. He's talking about how the Lord speaks words of comfort into our ear at precisely the moment that we need to hear them. Haven't you experienced that in your own life? He speaks about the fellowship of the Spirit, the way the Holy Spirit in us gives us fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. Haven't you experienced that fellowship because of the Holy Spirit? And then lastly, he mentions these two things together, affection and mercy. Affection is a deep sense of love that we've experienced from God and the mercy that we've experienced from God. And notice how Paul introduces everything on this list. He uses the word if, right? Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Now listen, he's not using that word if because he thinks that these may not be the case. Paul knows that all of these things are true in Christ. This church knows that they've experienced all of these things in Christ. Really what Paul is saying is because all of these things are true, 
Because you have experienced all of these things personally in your relationship with Christ, what he's asking us to consider is, are we right now living out these very same characteristics towards each other? If all of these things are a part of our experience as followers of Christ, we've received all of these things from God, then right now are we showing these things to each other? Are we showing encouragement? Are we showing comfort? Are we showing fellowship? Are we showing affection? Are we showing mercy? Because if we are, then guess what? We're going to be unified. We're going to be one as we live out these things that we have already received from Jesus. This is why we can be one. And in verse 2, Paul shows us what oneness is, what oneness looks like in practice. Look at verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I think it's pretty awesome that here's Paul sitting in jail under house arrest for two years. And yet he says, you know what would just really fulfill my joy? Sitting here in this prison, you know what would just really make my joy complete? If I could just hear that your church is unified. Friend, do you care that much about the unity of our church? That you know what, no matter what happens to me personally, it just fills me with joy to think about my church, to think about First Baptist Church of Melbourne and how unified they are, how together we are for the sake of the gospel. And if we don't care very much about that, is it possible that we don't have our mind on the things that are on the mind of God? That maybe even with Easter two weeks away and this incredible opportunity that's in front of us to share the gospel to our neighbors, I don't know, that maybe we're thinking more about what Easter dress we're going to buy or, or whether we're going to get the right kind of Cadbury eggs. And we've got little kids at our house. That, that's an important matter. You need to get that right. But, but, but are we thinking about that instead of thinking about our unity as a church, striving together for the gospel, proclaiming the gospel that our neighbors desperately need to hear? This is what's on the mind of God. Paul says, this is what would just complete my joy. He uses four phrases here to describe this unity. He says, I want you to be like-minded, literally to, to think the same things doesn't mean that we're all going to have the same opinion about everything, but he means that we will think the same things about the things that really matter. And we'll be willing to let those things trump our personal opinions. He goes on to say, I want you to have the same love. Not that we would love all the same things, but that we'd be filled with the same love. We'd be filled with the love that we've experienced from God, and we'd show that love to each other. He says, I want you to be of one accord. The word literally means to be one sold. What a beautiful picture of a church. They have one soul, one passion, one desire, one ambition. And then he comes back again and he says, I want you to have one mind. Very, very similar to what, what he said at the beginning of this list. He's almost coming around full circle. And yet this word one mind really speaks to our purpose, that we have the same purpose in everything that we do. And that purpose is to glorify God. And that purpose is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the world. And this is what I've seen in, in the years of ministry that God has given me so far. When a local church is unified around that purpose, when a local church is unified around glorifying God and proclaiming the gospel to the world around them, that church has an incredible unity. 
And the other things that we could fight about, and there's tons of things we could fight about, those things seem less and less important the more we're focused on the purpose that God has given us. This is the what of unity. This is what unity looks like. But the last thing Paul talks about in verses three and four is the how. This is so important. How can we be one? How can this happen? right? Look around this room at the diversity, right? We, we come from different races. We come from different economic backgrounds. We come from different upbringings, uh, different places around the country. H- how is it that a diverse group of people from all these different backgrounds, how is it possible that we're able to be one the way that he's talking about here? It's only possible if this one word is true of us. Humility. Listen to verses three and four. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So he starts out in verse three by talking about the opposite of humility. By talking about selfish ambition. And this selfish ambition is what produces rivalries and and little cliques all over the church. Because all we're interested in is what we want, right? Our selfish ambition. And then he talks about vain conceit. It literally means an empty arrogance. An arrogance that isn't even based on anything real. It reminds me of what Winston Churchill famously said about a political opponent of his. He said, he is a modest little man who has a great deal to be modest about. (laughs) Friends, we have a great deal to be modest about as well. Because we have been saved from all of our sin by the grace of God. And yet in spite of that, does, does what Paul talks about in verse 3 ever happen in the church today? Are there ever any selfish ambitions? Are there ever any rivalries, right? Does it, anybody ever get upset about things not being exactly the way that they want them to be? Yes, of course, and it can be about anything, right? In this room right now, there's about 400 different opinions on music, right? If you're married, even you and your husband don't agree, right, on, on music, Right? There's different opinions about what color we should paint things and how the carpet should be. There's different opinions about different events and how they should be run and when things should start and when they should end. And We can go on and on and on. Right? There's an endless amount of things that we can fight about if we want to, if our vantage point is selfish ambition. And yet what Paul says is don't do anything for that reason in the church. Don't don't do one thing in the church for that reason so that you can get what you want. That's what Paul says not to do. But I'm thankful that Paul doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just tell us what not to do. He tells us what to do. Paul says in verse 3, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Lowliness of mind. You know, the Romans didn't value humility at all. They, They saw it as a weakness. That's not how God sees humility. And all over this Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God says, I hate pride. And he actually says, I will oppose the person who is proud. But God says, I love to see humility in someone's heart. And when I see it, I bless it. Humility, a lowliness of mind. And this is hard for us to live out, isn't it? 
Because in our flesh, this is not the way we think about ourselves, right? Probably right now you're hearing that and you're saying, it says, I'm supposed to think about others as better than myself. And you're thinking, pastor, I've looked down the row. I'm pretty much better than everybody here. I mean, I'm pretty much the most awesome person in this room right now, right? I mean, in our flesh, right? That's kind of just how we naturally go, right? In our culture, we're so worried about people's self-esteem. The Bible says our self-esteem is quite healthy, right? A, A bigger issue for us is humility, right? A willingness to humble ourselves before an awesome God. And how does that happen? That happens when we think more about the cross, when we think about the infiniteness of our sin debt that we owed God, that he wiped away because of the blood of Jesus. And the more we think about that, the more the gospel produces in us a heart of humility. This is not a false humility. This is not the kind of humility that C.S. Lewis talked about where a man walks around all the time telling everybody how he's a nobody and he's a loser. That, that's false humility. A real humility is a gospel-produced humility. It's the kind of humility that the woman had in Luke chapter 7. You remember the, the sinful woman, the Bible says, who came into the room at this dinner party and poured fragrant oil over Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus talked about her to everybody at that dinner party, and he said, you know what? She loves much because she has been forgiven much. And the more we think about how much we have been forgiven, the more we think about what God has done for us in Christ, the more humility that produces in our lives. Humility doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves, as one has said. It means that we think less about ourselves. We don't think of ourselves as much. So we think of Jesus more. And we think of others more. And that's what verse 4 says, right? Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. You know, we really don't have to be told to think about what we want to do, right? I mean, from the time that we're little children, we're pretty good at thinking about what we want to do, right? That's my toy, right? This is what I want. And even as adults, right, we can carry that same spirit all the way through our lives where what matters most to me is my comfort, my happiness, my pleasure. Everybody else pretty much exists to bring me stuff and make me happy. That's the default mode. It's only the gospel in us that can produce a selflessness where we spend our lives not just thinking of our own interests but thinking of the interests of others. What would be best for the people around me. And there's so many applications of this. And I have to tell you that this, this week was kind of a painful week, right? I knew I was going to preach about humility all week and selflessness all week, right? And so all week long, there's these constant reminders of how selfish and how proud I really am. This is a hard truth to live out. Only the gospel can enable us to live this out. And there's so many applications of this, right? To, to think about what would be best, not for me, what would be best for my wife? What would be best for my kids? What what would be best for, for my neighbors? What would it be best for the people I work with? And everything in our flesh wants to war against that. And I wish we could talk about all of those different applications, but again, at the end of the day, who was Paul writing to? He was writing to a local church just like this one. And what he's saying is that in the church, 
Don't just think about your own interests, but think about the interests of others. This means that the older folks in our church should think about what would be best for the younger people in our church. And vice versa, the younger people in our church thinking about what would be best for the older people in our church, right? Not just what's best for me, what's best for others, what's best for those that we are seeking to reach. This is only something the gospel can produce in us. Here's the principle I really want to just be fixed in our minds, church. Listen to this. The gospel of a selfless Savior compels us to love one another selflessly. Let me say that again. The gospel of a selfless Savior compels us to love one another selflessly. Because at the end of the day, that's what it comes back to. Church, the only way we're going to walk worthy of the gospel is if we spend a lot of time in the swimming pool of the gospel. Letting the cross of Christ and what he has done for us wash the way we think and produce within us a humble heart. And that is why, church, that after Paul tells us to be humble in verses three and four, he gives us the greatest example of humility ever. And I can't wait until next Sunday on Palm Sunday when we can walk through these verses together. Paul says, if you're gonna do this, this is the only way you can. Verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we know that only by your spirit, only by your grace, only if we have the mind of Christ who humbled himself and came and died in our place, only then can we think of others as better than ourselves and think about their interest instead of just our own interest? Only then can we live in a way that's worthy of your gospel. So Father, would you help us? Would you give us grace in this church that you love, that you died for, to live out these words, to love each other well, Father, in spite of all differences of opinion that may arise now or in the future and to love our community well. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.